invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. And if you're thinking, I thought we already went through these verses, we did. We're going through them again. Because last time we dealt with Peter's command to repent. And this morning we will consider his command to be baptized. So we have a lot to get through. So buckle up. Don't get too comfortable. But let us come before our God and ask for his help. Father, we come before you with thanksgiving because you have not left us to our own devices. You have not left us in the dark wandering around trying to figure out where to go. You have given us your word, which is our light and our lamp. You have given us our your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and our hearts. And so I pray that by the light of your word and the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit, you would once again lead us into all truth, that we might know you better, that we might love you more, and that we might joyfully walk in obedience to your commandments by faith in Christ. And it is in his holy righteous name, the name that is above every name that we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the holy Inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of our God. Well, as we just heard, when Peter preached on Pentecost, the Jews who heard him were cut to the heart, meaning they experienced the pang and the prod of conviction. They were convicted because they were convinced. They were convinced that Jesus, as Peter proclaimed, is both Lord and Christ. And they were convinced that they were sinners who had sinfully rejected and crucified their Lord and Christ. And so they cried out, 
what shall we do? Peter answered, repent and be baptized. We've already considered repentance. So today we consider baptism. More than likely, you've heard of baptism. Many of you have been baptized. And baptism is a wonderful blessing. It can also be confusing. Genuine Christians do not all agree on baptism's nature, its necessity, its efficacy, or its application. We spend a lot of time debating baptism. I understand that. I wish we spent a lot more time rejoicing in baptism. Because that's what it's for. But what do we do with confusing or controversial doctrines? Well, we can't avoid them as much as we might want to. And we don't get to throw our hands up in despair Say, well, who really knows? We can't understand. That is not true. God has only revealed to us what he wants us to know. And so we must love God by knowing God and his word as well as his grace will allow us. Faith always seeks greater understanding as it relies upon the spirit of truth whom Christ promised would lead us into truth. Yet faith always undertakes this journey clothed in humility, recognizing as Paul reminds us that now we see in a mirror dimly and we only know in part. One day, we will see Christ face to face, and that face will bring perfect clarity, and we will know fully, even as we have been fully know known. I look forward to that day more than any other day, but that day is not today. So we humbly seek the truth. And we hold our biblical convictions with firm clarity and with warm charity. Which is what I hope to do this morning. And if you only hear the firm clarity, please know I'm feeling the warm charity towards those who may disagree with me. What I hope to do this morning is consider four questions with you. We'll spend the most time on the first question, which is, what is baptism? The second is, why should we be baptized? The third is, how should we be baptized? And the fourth is, who should be baptized? So I told you we have a lot to get through, and I wasn't lying. But number one, what is baptism? To clarify, by baptism this morning, I'm referring to water baptism as opposed to spirit baptism. Baptism with the Holy Spirit, which we talked about in chapter 1, refers to the Spirit's 
internal regenerating work by which he makes us new, giving us new hearts and new minds, giving us new spiritual life as he unites us to Christ through faith and applies all that Jesus has done to us. That's the baptism that saves you. And so every Christian has experienced this baptism. To be a Christian is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Water baptism is related, but not identical. It is an act of obedience that represents and confirms what I've just talked about with the Spirit's activity. Baptism is what we call a sacrament. And unlike Roman Catholics, we believe there are only two sacraments that our Lord has instituted, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Sacraments are sensible, and by that word I'm referring to our senses, things you see, you hear, you touch, you taste. They are sensible signs and seals of Christ and his new covenant of grace. For when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God promised in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to send a son, I'm going to send a seed, an offspring, who is going to come and he's going to undo what you guys did. He is going to crush the serpent's head and he is going to save you from your sins. And if you want to know what's the rest of the Bible about, <laughs> the rest of the Bible is about God progressively over time further revealing, accomplishing, and applying that promise. And this promise of salvation is the beginning of what we call the covenant of grace. And at its most basic level, a covenant is a relational and contractual agreement between two parties. So think of marriage. It's a covenant. You see the progression of this covenant throughout the Bible. In God's covenant with Noah and creation, his covenant with Abraham, with Moses and Israel, with David, and ultimately in the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace, finding its fullness and finality. All of the other covenants were leading to this fulfillment. But in order to help his people trust in and wait for this promise, God often gave covenant signs. So you think of when God promised Noah and creation that he's not going to destroy the world with another flood. He gives the covenant sign of the rainbow. So they could look at that sign and trust in God's promise. Or after God made his covenant with Abraham, promising to give Abraham a son by Sarah who would then lead to 
descendants more numerous than the stars or grains of sand, he gave Abraham the sensible sign of circumcision. The new covenant also comes with signs, with what we call the sacraments. And the purpose of these sacraments is to sensibly represent and confirm God's promise to God's people. Because the promises are primarily spiritual. You don't see them. And we are still waiting for their fullness. And because of our weakness and our sin, this makes us vulnerable to fear and doubt. When we can't see everything God has said, we start to wonder, is it true? And when we haven't yet received it in full, we may start to doubt, is God ever going to do what he said? So God, in his grace and patience with his weak and frail people, gives us sensible signs so we can glimpse what we cannot yet see and we can touch what we are still waiting to receive. And in this way, he speaks to and feeds our weak faith. And he reminds us and assures us in these sacraments, my promises are real. And what you see and taste and touch reminds you that my promises are real. As real as you're experiencing those things, that's how real my promises are. That's why Augustine called the sacraments visible words. It's a good description. So Peter tells the Jews to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you see the connection of baptism with a spiritual reality. Because the Jews couldn't see forgiveness. They couldn't see the Holy Spirit. But they could see and feel the water as it was poured upon them. So baptism was to represent and confirm the truth of what Peter was telling them. Even though our participation in the sacraments is an act of our obedience, we must understand, therefore, that the sacraments are not primarily acts in which our faith speaks to God. In the sacraments, God is first speaking to our faith. The sacraments directly reveal God's proclamation of promise and only indirectly then point to our response of faith. They are sensible signs of God's covenant promises. But they're also seals of those promises. In ancient times, a, a seal was a marker of authenticity. It was confirming that which it was sealing. So in the sacraments, God is giving his authenticating seal and mark that these promises are really from him and they are really true. He will do what he declares. So when speaking of Abraham's circumcision, Paul says Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith 
while he was still uncircumcised. So you see, I'm not making up this language of sign and seal. We get it straight from Romans 4.11. But I want you to notice that circumcision was God's seal of God's righteousness that Abraham had by faith. It was not the seal of Abraham's faith. It was the seal of God's righteousness, of the promise that belonged to Abraham by faith. It was to give Abraham confidence in the promise, not confidence in himself. And this verse should help guard us against mis misinterpreting our text, because you might read Peter's words and think, ah, oh, well, baptism is what gave them forgiveness. Baptism was the cause of receiving the Spirit. As if you're not forgiven, you don't receive the Spirit until you are baptized with water. But Peter's focus isn't on chronology here. In Acts, Sometimes Luke will describe people receiving the Spirit and then being baptized. Other times he describes people being baptized and receiving the Spirit. The point is not to establish chronological order. The point is to show the intimate connection between baptism and what it is signifying. But Paul is clear in Romans 4. He's not only clear that circumcision always had a spiritual significance, not some mere ethnic national significance. But he's also clear that circumcision wasn't what made Abraham righteous. Abraham received circumcision as the sign and seal of the righteousness he already had by faith before he was circumcised. That's what Paul says. So the sign and the seal do not create the reality. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The sign and the seal represent and confirm that reality. The thief on the cross was not baptized. Yet when he places his faith in Jesus, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, oh, it's really too bad you only came to faith now. You don't have time to get baptized. So, sorry. It was faith in Christ that saved the thief. Baptism does not save us. Baptism does not regenerate us. Christ saves us. His Spirit regenerates us. We receive this by faith, not baptism. So, when you learn that Presbyterians baptize the children of believers, please understand the reason we do that is not because we think it saves them. We are not presuming upon the grace of Jesus Christ or thinking we can create that reality. I'll explain later why we do it, but that's not why. <laughs> we do not believe in baptismal regeneration. That is not biblical. Baptism is a sign and seal of Christ and his saving benefits, which we receive by 
faith. And in particular, baptism, as opposed to the Lord's Supper, signifies our initiation into Christ and the covenant community, our union with the Lord. This is why Paul in Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So you see the language of union. It's about identifying, being identified with Christ. Union with Christ means that who Jesus is, what he has done in his life, resurrection, his life, death, and resurrection count for us. He is ours and we are his. It also means that his Holy Spirit now belongs to us, which is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, the body of Christ, which is the church. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So you see, it's about participating in the spirit, being identified with Christ and his body. This is what it sign is a sign of and what it seals. Christ and all of his saving benefits, including his spirit and the forgiveness of our sins. For by the blood of Christ and the sanctifying virtue of the Holy Spirit, we are washed clean of our sins. The author of Hebrews says the blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And Paul speaks in Titus 3.5 of the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Those are the realities we are signifying in baptism. We belong to Christ. We are members of his body, the covenant community. And so it signifies entrance into this reality, just as the Lord's Supper signifies continuing by faith in this reality. So it may be helpful. It may not be helpful. You just take it or leave it. To think of baptism somewhat like a wedding ring. Everywhere I go, I've got my wedding ring on. This ring is not the reality of my marriage. Putting this ring on is not what created my marriage. The ring signifies the marriage. And it sets me apart in the eyes of the world. It says, I belong to somebody else. And so everybody knows when they see me, I'm married. Your wedding ring, though, is not signifying your promise to your spouse. When I look at my, I ring, my ring, yes, it reminds me that I made a promise to my spouse. But on my wedding day, my wife, Leandra, put this ring on my finger and said, with this ring, I thee wed. This first shows me her promise to me. And in the same way, baptism is first and foremost God's promise to us, not our promise to God. My final word here is, is on this point, not my final word in the sermon, so don't get excited. 
My final word here is that there is no grace in baptism apart from the reality of faith, which may or may not be present at the moment of your baptism. Remember, the sacraments are signs and seals of the covenant of grace, which comes with blessings for covenant faithfulness and curses for covenant unfaithfulness. The water in baptism is therefore a promise of salvation as we receive it by faith. It is also a warning of judgment if we reject it in unbelief. God made the covenant with his people, but he calls us to be faithful to that covenant. If we reject the covenant, we experience the curses, not the blessings. So Noah and his family safely passed through the floodwaters by faith. They got in the ark. Moses and Israel safely passed through the waters of the Red Sea by faith. But those very same waters were judgment upon the unbelieving world and upon the Egyptians who tried to cross apart from faith. And both the flood and passing the Red Sea are described as baptisms in the New Testament. The very same waters signify the promise when received by faith and they warn us of judgment if we reject them in unbelief. So baptism, in one sense, is a summons to faith. Number two, why should we be baptized? For two reasons. First, because Christ commands it. And if we receive Jesus as our Savior, we submit to Jesus as our Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Jesus commanded his apostles to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that he commands. And so when we hear Paul or Peter in Acts 2 say, be baptized, we hear Jesus saying, be baptized. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ, but faith in Christ obeys Christ. This is one reason throughout the history of the church, regardless of denomination, baptism has been required before church membership or as part of church membership and coming to the Lord's Supper. As I said, baptism is signifying entrance into the covenant community of faith. The Lord's Supper is signifying continuation in that. So how can you continue in what you have not entered? How can you eat in a home that you have not walked through the door? Baptism is commanded. That's the first reason. But like all of Christ's commands, it is commanded for our good. And so the second reason we should be baptized is because it is a gift for us from God to strengthen our weak and weary faith. And why wouldn't we want to utilize the gifts that Christ has given us? Remember what covenant signs are for. They are sensible signs and confirmations of God's promises to us. In a sense, they are helping us see what we can't see and taste the goodness of what we're still waiting to receive. God knows 
that it is hard for us to wait for our Lord. That it's hard to keep trusting in what we can't see yet. He knows that our faith is easily assailed by fears and doubts. So he keeps coming to us in the sacraments to speak his comforting words of assurance. And to feed our faith that it might grow in strength and confidence. For why did God give Abraham the sign of circumcision? Did he come to Abraham and say, you know what, Abraham, I don't think you have enough rules. I need to add another one. So just to add more weight to Abraham. No. See, in Genesis 15, when God makes the covenant with Abraham and promises you're going to have a son, you're going to have many descendants, decades pass. Abraham doesn't have a son, let alone descendants as numerous as the stars and grains of, of sand. And in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah are struggling so much with doubt that they decide, you know, I think we're going to have to try that approach where, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Let, let's try that. How about Abraham, you go into Hagar and we'll create the son that God promised because he's not doing it. So you get the covenant in Genesis 15. You get Abraham's doubt and disobedience in Genesis 16. And then comes Genesis 17. And what does God do in Genesis 17? Does he come down? Abraham, you blew it. You idiot. Why did you doubt me? That's probably how we would have come to our children. So he comes down and he says, Abraham, I am God Almighty. And I'm going to help you trust the promises that you are struggling to trust. And he reminds him of the very same promises that he had told him in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. And then he commands him, now I want you and your sons and anyone, any foreigner who comes into your household, I want them all to be circumcised so you all have a very tangible reminder and a very key place of what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a seed, a son, not by Hagar, by Sarah. It was a gift of grace to strengthen Abraham's weak and doubting faith. And baptism is that same kind of gift to us. It is to be administered once, but it is for our good always. Number three then, how should we be baptized? Well, baptism, as I just said, is to be administered once. I am I'm asked at times, when should someone be rebaptized? The answer is never. You are never rebaptized. Baptism is either valid or it is invalid. That's the question. Did you receive a valid baptism or an invalid baptism? If it was valid, never needs to be administered again. Even if you come to the realization, you know, when I was baptized, I'm really, I don't think I was really a believer. Boy, if, if we have to get rebaptized every time we doubt our salvation, we're going to get wet all the time. And that's not what it's for. It's not what it is. Now, if it's invalid, then 
The sad fact is at one point in your life, you did just get wet and nothing else happened. So what makes baptism valid? Well, first, it is administered in the name of the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as Jesus commands in Matthew 28. Now you'll notice here in Acts 2, Peter emphasizes the name of Jesus. He says, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because he's denying Trinitarian baptism. I have no doubt when those 3,000 souls were baptized, they were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as Christ commanded. But he's emphasizing here, salvation is... In the name of the Lord, which all the Jews got, there we are saved by the name of the Lord. But he's just clarifying for them what that name is. The Lord who saves you is Jesus Christ. And so he emphasizes here for them what they would need to really see. That baptism means baptism in Christ and including his name. So we must be baptized as Christ commands in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism is also to be administered with water. For water symbolizes the cleansing of Christ's blood and the renewal of the Spirit. It also, as I've argued, warns of judgment. Now, I don't have time to go through all of the debates about the mode of baptism, sprinkling, pouring, immersion. This sermon, even though it's long, is just a drop in the bucket. So please come and ask more questions. But I will simply say that I do not believe the Bible ties the validity of baptism to a particular mode. The word for baptism is used in different contexts Sometimes it's clear it would refer to immersion. Sometimes it clearly refers to what would be sprinkling. Sometimes it refers to what clearly is pouring. So the argument that baptism means immersion is just incorrect. It's not what the word means. Sometimes it refers to that, but not always. And I would also say that most of the old covenant washings and cleansings involved sprinkling and pouring. So when the letter to the Hebrews refers to the purification and it uses the word for baptism to describe the sprinkling of the blood on the altar and the people in the old covenant and then says, we're sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. And since this also refers to the reception of the Holy Spirit, I would simply note that when it, whenever the Bible talks about us receiving the Spirit, it says God pours out His Spirit upon us. So I believe sprinkling and pouring are absolutely valid, biblically, theologically accurate modes of baptism, though I am not opposed to immersion. I'm just not going to immerse your babies, so not going to happen. I would also simply say here that baptism ideally should be administered by a lawfully ordained minister in the context of corporate worship. Because again, this is about word and sacrament. You never separate those. And it is about entrance into the covenant community of faith. And so it seems to me it should be done in the context of the covenant community of faith. Now, if you were baptized by somebody else in an ocean or something like that, I would say you had an irregular baptism, but not an invalid baptism. We see examples of irregular baptisms in the Bible. Fourth, 
And finally, who should be baptized? Which is probably the question you all walked into a Presbyterian church wanting to know the most. Now, the obvious answer is believers should be baptized. As these Jews hear and receive and believe the word, Peter tells them, be baptized. There's no controversy here. However, I do believe, as has the vast majority of the church throughout history, believe that the children of believers should also be baptized. This has been the practice and belief of the church through the vast majority of its history, regardless of theological tradition. But I recognize that among American evangelicals today, this is the minority position, so I'm going to give you a few reasons why I believe this is the case. The first and most important reason is the significant continuity between the various administrations of the covenant of grace. Now, I've talked a lot about covenants today, so if that is new for you or you need a refresher, you can go to our website. I preached 16 sermons on covenant theology trying to explain how we understand the flow of the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So, in all your spare time, you can go listen to me more. Uh, if you don't want to listen to me more, I have other better resources that you can read or listen to. But I think when we understand Scripture carefully and clearly, we see that the promise, the substance of the covenant promise from Genesis 3.15 to the new covenant with Christ was the same promise. It was the same substance. I will be your God. You will be my people. So the promise hasn't changed even though the sign has changed. I would also note that in every administration of the covenant of grace, children were included as part of the covenant community. The covenant of works with Adam clearly included his offspring, as you see in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5. The covenant with Noah clearly states, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, Genesis 9.9. The Abrahamic covenant was with Abraham and his offspring, Genesis 15.18. The covenant with Moses and Israel included their little ones, Deuteronomy 29.11. The Davidic covenant is all about David's offspring, Psalm 89.4. And the new covenant is not an exception. Peter is clear. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Now, if Peter has changed the definition of children here, as Israel understood it throughout its history, and he just means, I just mean your spiritual children. I don't mean your, your biological children anymore. Well, he, he probably shouldn't have directly alluded to Genesis 17. When God gives circumcision to Abraham and the three categories of people are included. Abraham, this is for you. This is for your sons. And this is for any male foreigners who come into your household. And Peter now gives the same promise, but it's expanded. It's not just for you men. It's all of you men and women. It's not just your sons. It's sons and daughters, your children. And it is for those who are far off, which Ephesians 2 is clear, the Gentiles. All those 
who the Lord will call to himself. So to preach to a bunch of Jews and tell them the promises for them and for their children, referring to the Abrahamic covenant language, would be the worst thing Peter could have done if he was, was now meaning something different. It would also mean that Pentecost was the largest mass excommunication in church history. Because all of those who had previously been part of the covenant community of faith, all of those children were now kicked out. They were now you're no longer part of it. Hope you can get back in. And the connection to Genesis 17, as I said, is undeniable. Now, we might argue, yeah, but we, we certainly can't guarantee, and we might even assume that infants don't have faith when, when they're baptized. One, the, the Lord can regenerate anyone at any time. You think of John the Baptist. Clearly, he had the spirit in the womb. So it, it is no more miraculous for God to save uh, a baby as it is for him to save you and me. In fact, it's one of my favorite things when I hold those little babies to baptize them because I see myself. I was just as helpless. My salvation was not initiated by, oh, I get this and here I come. It was initiated by God coming to me with his covenant promises and then giving me everything that I needed so that I could believe and receive. But even if we assume they don't have faith, which many probably don't, just as there are adults who get baptized and don't actually have faith at the time. We say, well, they don't understand. They don't have faith yet. Well, Yes, that's true, but I think if you understand the connection with circumcision, which was a, a sign and seal of a spiritual reality, I would argue the same spiritual reality just in shadow form, and now we have it in full clarity form, then we'd say, well, Isaac, he didn't understand, and yet God commanded, you, you circumcise Isaac too. And again, I'm giving the benefit of the doubt to the Lord's command. And I don't see anywhere in scripture where that command is repealed. And he says, no longer give the covenant sign to covenant children. So, as I've said, faith is necessary, but it may not be present at the moment of baptism. But when we understand that baptism is first and foremost about God's promise, not our proclamation of faith, then that still makes sense. But you might say, well, we mainly see adults baptized in Acts. Well, this is the first generation of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You're going to see a lot of adults coming to faith. But I would also note that of the explicit baptisms mentioned, a very high percentage of them are household baptisms. Again, that, that's not a definitive proof, but it seems likely to me that these households had little children in them, maybe even some babies. And I don't see a specification of which part of the household is baptized and which isn't. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says that the child of one believing parent is considered clean and holy, set apart. Now, there's certainly a difference between the visible and invisible church, but children, I believe, are part of the visible community of faith, and they are to be treated as such until we see that they have rejected what belongs to them. And that's the language that Paul uses in Romans when he speaks of the Israelites. He says, to them belong the promise. 
They're, they're rejecting what is for them. And we see the same thing in the church, where if our children grow up and they, they do not place their faith in Christ, then the, the sad reality is they're rejecting what belongs to them. And let me just ask you, parents, how do you instinctively raise your children? Do you raise them as if they are part of the church or outside of the church? When you teach them to pray, do you, do you teach them to pray, our Father? Or do you pray, well, all right, I'm going to do this. My Father, hopefully one day he'll be yours. When they sin, do, do you share the good news of Jesus Christ? And do you encourage them to confess their sins? And as they, they do, do you speak the assurance of promise that comes when we confess our sins? Then you're treating them like Christians. And I think that's right. We're not assuming anything. And we are praying for the Lord to give them faith. We are, we are praying for that Lord to do what only he can do. But when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he writes to the church, and then he specifies a bunch of people that he considers to be part of the church, and one of his commands is for children. And again, he doesn't clarify which children. And he tells them to obey in the Lord, and he appeals to the fifth commandment and its covenant promise. I cannot come away from that without, assume, without concluding Paul believed that the children were part of the covenant community of faith. And he commanded them to obey in the Lord. When we understand the trajectory of the covenant of grace through redemptive history, which is always extending and expanding, growing in clarity, fulfillment, and application, it doesn't make sense to me that in this regard it's it's narrowing and becoming more restrictive. I believe we would need a clear statement in Scripture to lead us to conclude that, and I don't see one. Baptism is therefore, I believe, for believers and for their children. Now, I know this has been a lot. And some of you, maybe most of you, have more questions now than you did when you walked in. And that's okay. I hope you will come to me with your questions, to Pastor Ryan, to your elders, to others in the church. For some of you, the application of this sermon is, I believe in Christ and I haven't been baptized. I should probably get baptized. That would be a wonderful application. For others of you, the application may be, I at least need to really consider if my parent, my children should be baptized. I haven't done that and I'm at least going to give Pastor Neil a chance to answer my questions and maybe convince me. Now, let me be clear. You do not have to agree with me on this to be a, a beloved member of this church. But I would humbly ask that you at least give me a chance to answer your questions and walk through this with you. And if you come to a different conclusion on that, okay. I will still be your pastor and I will still pastor your kids too. And I promise I won't secretly sprinkle water on. For all of us who have been baptized, we should look back upon our lives and rejoice that God has kept his promises to us. Maybe some of us look back and see, you know, I'm, I'm not actually walking in step with the covenant and, and I need to confess and repent. But for all of us, 
I believe this text should give us great joy and confidence because I I'd want to very briefly end looking at verse 41 which says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 people. And I wonder if we read verses like that and we think, oh, I, I wish I could have been around when God's word and spirit was working like that. Maybe we've, we've been, become so pessimistic we think that's never going to happen anymore. But we have the exact same word. We have the exact same Holy Spirit and we have the same God who is still saving sinners through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, is every local church going to experience this kind of mass conversion all at once? No, that's okay. But is God still saving a lot of sinners in his universal church throughout the world? Maybe thousands every single day and we just don't know about it. I think that's highly likely. But even if one sinner is saved in a day, Jesus tells us heaven rejoices and erupts in celebration. And so should we. Baptism is a celebration of God's covenant faithfulness. It is a confirmation to us that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church and Christ will keep building his church. For with every conversion and baptism, it's as if we can again see the heel of Christ crushing that serpent's head. And as we see the water flow, we know the blood of Christ is still flowing to wash sinners clean. And so baptism is a celebration of Christ's triumph over our sin, over Satan, and over the kingdom of darkness. So let us keep preaching the gospel with hopeful expectation, with confident joy and clarity, making disciples of Jesus Christ and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that Christ commands. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that by your grace we have grown in clarity. But Lord, I pray that that clarity would, would not just puff up our heads, but it would warm our hearts. We would again be so humbled and thankful that you came to us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were hostile to you, when we hated you, and you gave us your promises, and you gave us your spirit, and you gave us new life, and you gave us the sacraments to help us trust in you. Lord, I thank you that the gospel is all grace from A to Z. It is all Christ from beginning to end. And so I pray that even as we think about baptism, if nothing else, it would lead us to praise our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to trust him today, tomorrow, and forever. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.